Watch this. Michael, Michael Morrison, welcome to the podcast, and and thank you for coming, agreeing to meet us. Delighted to be here, seeing you both in St Andrews. Yeah, it's it's a bit, it's always good to meet fellow golf nuts and nerds <laughs> and uh, around St Andrews, and it's being up here for the Open is is quite special. But you've got something going on at St Andrews this week. What what are you doing up here? Well, having uh, recently published my new book. In fact, this was only a week ago, Friday. Um, I was invited to an event that the RNA has organised called Meet, Meet the Author. And so in a, about a couple of hours' time uh, at the Golf Museum, there's uh, six of us who are going to talk this evening on our books that we've recently published. And then there's been such an outpouring of terrific books on golf history over the last few years that there's a second session on Tuesday evening with an, yeah, another tomorrow. group of authors. Yeah. So uh, I think it's uh, it's a great thing that... The RNA and more generally golf is paying more attention to the history of the game. Yeah. Because I think for quite a long time the history was sort of pushed a little bit into the background. But I think yeah. people are now beginning to realise that our game is a wonderful game to play, but also the legacy that we have from the past and we can connect to it to this very day yeah. and play on the same land where our forefathers played golf. I just think it 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 makes it um you know quite special so yeah, I'm, I'm really just, happy to be involved in this well it's just an amazing but i'm gonna ask you to put your microphone just a little bit closer that's absolutely perfect but it's 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 great that we get people like yourselves that are so interested in the history that are, that are willing to, to dig deep but this of course isn't your first I'm, i should say i'm also joined by bruce so bruce is here he's just <laughs> sat there in silence but this isn't your first book Science is it partner. no this is my fourth book so um i started uh, writing by accident, uh, literally. I had to have uh, both my hips replaced because they'd worn out. And um, so I was off golf for the winter. This was back in uh, 10 years ago, 2012. And um, so I, my go local golf club is the Gog Magog Golf Club in, in Cambridge. And um, so I just asked to help out to tidy up the archives. It's something to do to be around my mates playing golf. And I, well, I, I couldn't join them. And I started digging around and trying to figure out what was what. And I found some old historical material, which one of which was um, a letter written by James Braid in 1929, describing how he would change the old course at, at the Gogs at that time. And I thought this was wonderful. I'd never seen anything like this before. Yeah. We'd had a centenary book in 2001, but it hadn't referred to the details. Hadn't surfaced, yeah. So um, that got me started. And I, I thought I'd just give a, a fireside presentation to some friends about how the course developed and they put up a, a sign in the club say anybody's interested to come and hear Mike's talk and a um, hundred people signed up <laughs> so I then wow. had to put together a formal presentation that sort of got me more and more interested how, how in, was that? in was that pressure no career-wise I used to do <laughs> yeah, no, it was just, it had been a while since I'd done yeah. a presentation. So, yeah, I, I was I was used to doing it, but yeah. not in a golf context. Yeah. And so that was the first foray that was into, the first book, yep. into golf course history and yes. golf course architecture, really. And, you know, exactly. that, that piqued your interest. It did. And so the second book came along quite quickly because being in Cambridge, Cambridge University Golf Club has had been there 
well before um, the Gogs had been there. Gogs was 1901. Mm. Most evidence seemed to say that Cambridge University Golf Club was formed in 1875. That's what they said on their website. And I knew the president of the CGC Golf Club, and I said, have you got any minute books or anything historical? He says, oh, yeah, we have these two big leather-bound books in, stored in one of the colleges. Um, I said, can I have a look at them? And he said, yes, certainly. So I finally got there, and the first page that I opened was 1889. The secretary was Harry Colt. Wow. And the next year he would become captain of the University Golf Club. So the first handwriting in the first book, In the Minutes, is written by Harry Colt. Look at that. And so that was 1889, but they had no minutes before then. Yeah. So I then started to correct them on their date. (laughs) (laughs) So this is the, the University Golf Club. Yes. Obviously, there's a there's the team Cambridge University. Yes, and they were playing at at, at a club that bore the same name. Where 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 was that? Well, um, <clears throat> the University Golf Club, it turns out, was actually formed in 1869 hmm. by one person from Royal West, uh, sorry, from Royal North Devon, uh, George Gossett, and and a young Scotsman, uh, Andrew Graham Murray from Edinburgh, right. <clears throat> and um, so that made. It transpires. It made Cambridge University Golf Club one of the oldest half dozen golf clubs in England. Oh, right. And so I then started digging and digging and finding old uh, research material and uh, newspapers and clippings about golf being played on a common in Cambridge called Coldham Common. Right. Which, um, and the reason, the reason for the title of my book was The Worst Golf Course Ever. <laughs> and that was Bernard Darwin, who was also a member of Cambridge University Golf Club in the mid-1890s. And when his writing career got, mm. got going, he described Coram Common as the worst golf course I've ever seen, and many others would award it a like distinction. <laughs> so hence I chose that as the title of the book, mm. uh, which was the history, then the history of Cambridge University Golf Club yeah. up to 1990. It didn't, didn't go up to modern times, just the old history. So yeah. that, that was my that was my next book. And doesn't he, he talks about, um, uh, well, you, you mentioned it in the book, how that, that it was on pretty soggy, marshy kind of terrain that didn't drain all that well. And uh, I think play was only permitted really in the wintertime. There was a, was there a, a live rifle range or something across part of the course? So. I, this is why it was described as the worst golf course yeah, ever. Yes. See, it, see, they see, could see, only yeah. play in the winter months um, because the cattle came back yeah. on. The commoners had rights in the summer. It was flat. It was muddy. Um, originally nine holes, but they did manage to put together 18 subsequently. But then a railway was built the whole way through the middle of it. And there was a rifle range there as well, which yeah. they interacted with from time to time. So it was a bizarre setup. It didn't last, yeah. and uh, it, it, it all came to, uh, to an end in 1901, and the students moved to Worlington, where they're still based to this day. But you're here, I suppose, in St. Andrews, ready to, to do your book signing of, the, of the, your latest book, which is The Great English Golf Boom, 1864 to 1914, A History by Michael Morrison. And you say in the preface to it that um, it's not often you write a book about the people that come second, but you decided to, to give it a bash. Um, what was it that, that inspired you to write this? Well, it came out of writing these, the other books, where in each of the books I tried to put the situation of the particular club into some sort of context of what was happening in golf at that time. And each time I was sort of seeing that there was a lot of golf clubs formed at that time, but I couldn't find any source that somebody had written up and said, 
this is how many golf clubs were formed at that mm. time. There was one, Peter Lewis, um, who was the director of the Golf Museum at the time, had put one article together where he'd figured out how many clubs were formed up to about 1914, but not in any detail. Yeah. So I, I thought, once I'd sort of finished writing my third book, I thought, well, that would be an interesting project to figure out how could I figure out how many golf clubs were formed and where they were all where yeah. all they all were and what was the nature of them hmm. um, so and I figured out what I, how I could do that I just knew it was going to take a long time yeah. to do well it's interesting we just had uh, very recently uh, Stephen Proctor on who, who, who talked around a very similar dates but, but his book is about kind of the people and how it all changed but this book's very much about how the clubs formed and how the clubs came about isn't it and there is it tends to be a lot of i find that um a lot of clubs put a lot of stock on being you know one of the first or top five in in anywhere really and um england is one of those ones it's got blackheath which i think i saw a list recently that had the list of in order of of the english clubs and blackheath is like you, have to, you will correct me. But it's 1766. Like years before 1766 else, yeah. is the it's, sort of now now acknowledged date. Uh, yeah, is when, it 1766? The earliest evidence we have of a, of a club. the first, is it, Blackheath? Well, <clears throat> it was the first club in England uh, playing on Blackheath, um, <clears throat> just to the um, east of London. And then there was a second one in 1818 at Manchester on Kersal Moor. Yeah. Uh, 1818, small club. But both of these clubs were essentially expatriate Scots yeah. Yeah. playing golf in England. They were not English golf clubs, yeah. if you know what I mean. Yeah. So the first genuine English golf club was formed in North Devon mm. yeah. at Westwood Hall, which subsequently became Royal North Devon. Yeah. And that was begun by Englishmen. It was set out on, as 18 holes, the first 18-hole course in England, by old Tom Morris, who was invited to come down. And um, it's the oldest existing one still playing on the same land yeah. to this day. I've got a little video. That, so uh, I've got a video from a historian named Barry Coyne at West Lang. So I'd like to play you. And we're going to play it on the, the podcast too so they, they can hear it. But um, it's quite an interesting uh, little video. So I'd like to get your opinion on it, if I may. Okay. Uh, I'll play it for you now. When the West Lancashire Golf Club was founded in 1873 by... Uh, seven members of the Royal Liverpool Golf Club. It's important to understand that golf in England was virtually unknown and in the Field magazine of 1872 there was a little piece written by somebody who signed himself a ridiculer who said that a few years ago golf was almost unknown except for a few who are supposed to be demented Scotchmen playing old man's hockey. They're looked upon by Englishmen as spoonies who haven't the energy for cricket, football or rackets. And there was a view that even to be seen in England carrying a bag of clubs would indeed lead to ridicule. So I think hearing that you kind of i don't know would you first of all would you agree with the sentiment of it Ab absolutely chimes with what was happening at that time yeah yes. and it's it, it, so how did it come to be then that you have this game that's just scottish that's that's played by expatriates yes. in the south of the south of england and then you finally get 
old Tom come down to North Devon, or North Devon at the time, Westwood yes. Ho, and how did it take root in England yes. if it was so yes. so ridiculed? Well, a critical step was there was a boom in golf in Scotland that happened earlier than the development of golf in England, and that the critical year for that was 1848. Two things happened. The gutta percha ball was invented and replaced the feathery, and the feathery, which was um, expensive to produce and also didn't last very long, meant that it limited who could play golf. The 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 gutta percha ball was much cheaper and uh, it could be re if it broke, you could yeah. remold it and use it again. The railways in Scotland began around about that time also. The Glasgow yeah. to Edinburgh line was opened in the mid-1840s and that created the basis for a network and so by the 1850s you had a network connecting all the seaside towns to the main towns in Scotland and a boom subsequently followed that didn't happen in England Um, the the railways were somewhat more advanced there and golf took a much longer time to take off and the the reason for that was there just wasn't the knowledge of the game until Mm. English people started travelling to Scotland for holidays. Yeah. And I think you might see on the front cover of my book, there's this cartoon which dates back to 1885. It appeared in Punch. And it was called The Golf Stream. And this was signifying all these English golfers going up to Scotland to play golf in the summer. So there was this, Mm. there was a need to raise awareness. So there was a directional flow of Englishmen going to Scotland, yeah. seeing golf for the first time and thinking, oh, that might be quite interesting. At the same time, there was increasing emigration of Scots south into England. And, of course, with the boom in golf having happened in Scotland, more of those Scots coming south knew how to play the game. So men, most of the early clubs amongst their founders were Scots. Yeah. So that was the first sort of step along the way to getting a small number of clubs in England off the ground but the critical next step was the what I think of as the early adopters Mm. were these Englishmen who found this game rather interesting and although they'd never played it before they were willing to give it a try but it's a just just like any other innovation it takes time yeah and so the number of clubs in England formed very slowly so from 1864 when North Devon was formed to 1879 so that's 15 years there was only 15 golf clubs formed in England really? on average once once a year. Yeah. But then in the 1880s, the sort of snowball by that time was starting to get mm. larger. Yeah. And by 1889, there were 100 golf clubs wow, in England. Really? So the 1880s was the, was the takeoff period. Yeah. So that was essentially from 1864 to 1889, a quarter of a century, 100 clubs were formed. Yeah. But then, then is when the great boom began. Boom really began. Yeah. I mean, when we think of those early clubs that were formed there, Mike, I mean, I guess going back to Scotland and the origins of the game, when we think of the places where golf grew up being played, it, it, it was Dornoch and North Berwick, St Andrews, typically seaside towns. Obviously, the, the Lynx turf, the Lynx land was the perfect golfing terrain that was fast draining. And did it... Did the, the early adopters of golf in England, do they follow sort of a similar pattern in ge- geographically? Obviously, North Devon, fairly kind of coastal, Lynxland. Yes. Um, I guess North Northwest England too. But of those clubs, as things started to develop pace in the 1870s and 80s, was it primarily based around the coast, just like it was north of the border? The simple answer is no. 
Uh, and uh, although the blueprint for how golf could develop in mm. England was was set out at Royal North Devon, you know, Lynx Course, mm. Old Tom, 18 holes, that was not how golf developed in England. It was more of an inland game. Mm. Is that right? And it was played more on parkland than on Lynx land. Really? And more often it was nine holes that they began with because it was a new game. Mm. Yeah. And <clears throat> when you set up a club, you know, you've got finances to put it together yeah. and so they were cautious initially they weren't every almost every English golfer was a beginner yeah, yeah. <laughs> so anybody setting up a club didn't necessarily want to go straight for 18 holes and all the costs associated with that so typically golf began as a nine hole game more inland than at the at the at the uh, at the coast and mostly on uh, Parkland, rather than on um, Links Land or or some of the other uh, land land uses such as Downland and Heathland, and to some extent Moorland, they gradually started to mm, appear in the picture. Yeah. But it was the great boom from 1890 to 1914 when when that really began to develop substantially. So a few statistics: 86 um, percent of the clubs formed before 1914 were inland. Really? 85% of them were on parkland and really? 78% of them began with nine holes. So the wow. great boom in England was very different mm. from the formula, the, the well-acknowledged yeah. route to how golf was played in Scotland. It was a, a different, of completely different character. And we've spoke leading up to this podcast where we've just had a little natter about the book and, and what's in it. But what also struck me was the um, the parity of of gender, or, or the greater parity of gender that the, I suppose we have now. So it was a lot of female players back in in the early days. Yes, um, <clears throat> and this is one of these perceptions I think we have from this from modern times is that golf was. Um, a male-dominated sport back in those times that male-only clubs were in the majority, perhaps mirroring the gentlemen's clubs yeah. of the time. And certainly at the beginning, that was more or less the case because women initially were only encouraged to try putting and uh, very short forms of golf. Their golf courses mm. were, were, you know, uh, no more than a putter and, and a chipper well, we're to go around. Well, from the Himalayas. For example, the Himalayas. So. And, and Royal North definitely also had a ladies' club on a similar, very small course. So, And they wore, you know, the long dresses and bonnets and there was, uh, it was not considered ladylike to raise a golf club above shoulder height. So, <laughs> you know, you could see why golf didn't particularly take off. But a critical moment was 1893. The Ladies' Golf Union was formed in 1893 and their first championship took place in 1893. And that established the foundation for women being encouraged to play golf. And by, let me get this right, by 1895 there was 100 clubs in England where there were ladies playing golf. But the most dramatic uh, development took place as we approached the First World War. Uh, And again, if uh, you look into the book, I've tried to... calculate how many golfers there were in England yeah and I came to the figure of about by 1914 of about 300,000 yeah which from a start standing yeah, start of 100 golfers loads. in 1860 and by 10,000 golfers in 1890 we got to 300,000 golfers by 1914 and this was the, the 
probably the most critical and interesting fact of all, one quarter of those golfers were women. Really? I mean, that's amazing, isn't it? So most golf clubs in England, by, by approaching the First World War, were mixed golf clubs. The, the ones that were men only tended to be a, f- a small number of the elite clubs, whose, whose women, uh, typically the, the mothers and the daughters, played at other clubs nearby, but not at those small number of relatively uh, elitist type clubs. Yeah. The vast majority of clubs in England were fo- formed mm-hmm. in small towns. More than half of the clubs formed during the Great Boom were formed in towns with less than 10,000 people. Wow. So these were small provincial market towns. Mm, yeah. Um, and so it tended to be more of a mixed community of golfers, not just the upper classes and the upper middle classes playing, but right down into the lower middle classes. And increasingly, towards the end, the skilled working classes were beginning to yeah. play, play mm. golf also. So it was a, I think this is one of the uh, insights coming out of my, my research was it was a more egalitarian game yeah. mm. than has been previously supposed. Yeah, yeah. And that's something I guess we, we see now. It's maybe not quite the case, or it's certainly something that we've talked about when you come to Scotland. It seems like more of an egalitarian game and it's kind of stayed true to its its roots maybe in that sense whereas in England I, I guess correct if I'm wrong but maybe the, the two world wars and that moment that cut off moment for your book there you know things change quite dramatically as a result of, of the wider economic context going on at that period of time and I guess there's not only golf courses that were nine holes based in in, in sort of pasture land or parkland areas that that maybe starts to change a little bit. Um, yeah, there's maybe passes. another book to be written. I think that's yeah. what you're, you're <laughs> saying there, Bruce. <laughs> well, but not, uh, but not, not wanting to line but, you up for another another Not, not by me. Sequel. Yeah. <laughs> not, my, not by me just yet. <laughs> you need a bit of time, uh, yeah, certainly, yeah. to recover. Yeah, but but yes, the story does change uh, after the First World War. And, mm. and uh, to be honest with you, I, I don't know what that story fully looks like. Mm. The one theme that does come out of the motor car was starting to come in yeah. at the uh, just before the First World War and that was beginning to have an impact on uh, further development because that increased the catchment yeah. area. Mm. If you only, most golfers, I, again, another theme that comes out in my book is that when I talk to golfers about what I've been researching and writing about, the most common phrase they first come up with is, oh, yes, the railways. Yeah. Mm. And when you look at it in detail, the railways had a role to play and facilitated golf, but they were all, they'd already been there for four decades yeah, before yeah. golf boomed. So there isn't a close connection between the railways yeah, being established yeah. and golf being established. Because I, I, I certainly in Scotland always assumed that you know the, the railway system is 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 really important. And you exactly. look at um, any decent early Scottish golf club, and there is a railway within. You know, half a mile, a mile of, of the club. And certainly, I was chatting to someone at West Lancashire recently, and, and at the starter there said that someone had said to them, Oh, it's really good of them to build a railway for the golf course, isn't it? <laughs> a road train station. And it's not it's <coughs> the other way around. But um, it's interesting how that didn't develop in, in England, or certainly doesn't yes. follow that pattern so much. <coughs> and and the, the, the reason I, as I've interpreted it, is because what happened was most golf clubs were formed inland so occasional trips to the coast you took mm. the train yeah but it, they were look the courses were located typically on commons yeah. or in pasture around the edges of these towns 
because that's where you could get yeah. some relatively cheap land to lay out nine holes. And the people who played golf tended to actually live closer to their golf clubs than they did to the railway station, which they might have yeah. taken to go mm. to work. So my broad conclusion, and there's evidence to back it up, is the bicycle might have been more important in terms of a, <laughs> oh, yeah. a mode of transport. Like. Because the bicycle boomed in the mid-1890s, exactly the same mm. time as the golf yeah. boom was taking off. And coming back to the theme of women, the bicycle was to some degree helped, helped with the emancipation of women because they were allowed to then go out on in groups socially without mm. having a chaperone. Yeah. looking after them. So there was a, a theme of emancipation beginning to happen in England at this yeah. time. And maybe golf and bicycles were part of that story. Oh, that's amazing. I, I love yeah. that idea. I love the, the whack of clubs on the back and get, there I, are, I could stay upright on a bike. There's pictures in my book here of, of bicycle racks at golf clubs. And when I went through all the centenary histories of clubs, you kept seeing references to, oh, we've, in 1907, we built another bicycle rack. Really? So this was before the car. I must say, in the book, there is there is some fantastic imagery. You must have spent ages just trying to find them. Some of the images in there are, are brilliant. But I was very, very lucky that I got some help from people in the golf historian community. Yeah, well, we all need a bit of help every now yeah. and then, don't we? There was one guy particularly who collects golf postcards, and that's his niche. Yeah. And, yeah. I, and he kindly lent me a bunch of postcards, which I could then take copies of yeah. and use that to sort of bring out the color all color meaning black and white um sort of tell a bit more of the story yeah. by showing what these different golf clubs look like not so much the golf courses which don't look very inspiring on a postcard yeah but the clubhouses yeah. and their style of dress and i've just seen things like the bike racks being added you know that it, it it's obviously forced you i would wouldn't be as aware but it's obviously forced you to ask the question you know why are they putting bike racks in and yeah it does lead to a to quite a natural conclusion it if ties together to put more mm. bike racks in then people must be using them yes. so. so more people were going to golf on a bike than typically they were taking a train during the great boom is a broad a broad yeah. message that comes out it's fascinating so yeah the, the, the interesting sort of contrast between how the game evolves in Scotland and, and how it evolves in England and um, I guess obviously it's you know open week here in St Andrews and it maybe be remiss to not tie the 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 English golf boom that you talk about, Michael, back to the Open Championship too, and it almost seems as if that, you know, that the the fact that more and more people in England are taking up the game from the eighteen sixties is borne out by the fact there's increasingly a sort of English flavour to the number of, of Open Championship winners from sort of the eighteen nineties on. I think. Um, yeah. the open championship well, the John John Ball John Ball was the first yeah. Englishman yeah. to win the Open, and and also the first amateur. Yeah. Um, in 1890, I'm sure when you talk to Stephen Proctor, he would have. Yeah, he, he his John book Ball. has, you know, chapter and verse on this. Um, so, that, to the degree there was, the stories of the heroes emerging from golf were beginning to appear in mm. the newspapers, which which must have contributed yeah. to growing interest because sport generally had been booming at that time. Although golf was very much at the at the tail end relative yeah. to football and uh, rugby and tennis yeah golf came later so we we get old tom's visits to to westward ho which has led to a course being made i think Stephen touched on it in, in the podcast with him that he laid out 
something very rudimentary and return a few years later to lay out something a bit more substantial and in in full 18 um, what what happens after that then what, what what sort of time frame are we looking at and what are the first who were the early adopters which clubs were the first to kind of adopt and go go get a golf club well um as i mentioned you know so between 1864 and 1889 those 25 years you you got 100 golf clubs yeah. formed a mix of inland and and uh seaside ones yeah but in terms of who was designing these golf cor- club sorry golf courses if that's what the question you were no, referring well, the to question Tom. was, was which, who, who were the first who, which clubs were first i suppose in terms of we've got royal north devon first well oh, okay then, i could then, i could oh, sort of roughly go that, through yeah, this can you mention this, this well, royal, royal north devon yeah. first yeah. and and then you've then you had london scottish uh, around about 1864 uh, 65 which then there was a schism within uh, London Scottish, which created uh, Royal Wimbledon. There were the the military course, side of the yeah. club stayed separate from the civilian yeah. side of the club. So they and they've still got obviously the red jacket because of they both still exist, yeah, yeah. Uh, obviously. And then in eighteen sixty nine, you had three clubs formed. There was uh, Royal Liverpool at Hoylake, still there to this yeah. day. Alnmouth up in the Northumberland and Cambridge University Golf Club. Then you had a, just a, scat, a light scattering of clubs formed during the 1870s. And yeah. then, uh, you know, I suppose the critical one, uh, the one that's thought most highly of in an English context today is Royal um, St. George's. Yeah. That was formed in 1887. Yeah. Mm. And that was, although it was at the coast, it was probably could be more considered to be a London club. Yeah, because most of the golfers had London addresses, mm, yeah. and it was their opportunity to have. And it's their nearest links, really. I suppose it was the nearest links. There were a few others earlier, yeah. but that one was set up by London golfers for predominantly for London golfers at that at that time, and that was became quite probably to that point. Royal Liverpool was seen as the outstanding club yeah. in England, and then Royal St George's came along to not so much compete between the two clubs but presented a bit of a beacon towards Scotland saying we can do this also yeah. on classic links land and create courses that are of a standard where the Open Championship can mm. be held yeah and the Open moves there to Royal St George's in 1894 correct it? uh, that's the first time they it, played outside Scotland uh, that was right 1894 yeah. and that was won by J.H. Uh, Taylor mm. I believe that must have been quite a big decision to send the open south of the border because it did it did mark the the start of a of a change in thinking for yes. for golf really to, to take the open into england and i think it ties into the fact that there was now a lot of golfers and a lot of golf clubs yeah I, again maybe just to give you some statistics uh, so i there was 100 clubs by 1889 in the, the next quarter of a century from 1890 to 1914 1200 clubs were oh. formed in England and they were coming in at one a week <laughs> over that entire period yeah. that's the average the peak years 1893-1894 just when that first open championship was wow. held that's at Royal St George's year to us 1893 that's where when our club was uh, was formed at Blackwell the Blackwell yeah. yes 1893 yes. so 1893 1893 there was you might be Nine interested course, yeah. to know there was 80 clubs formed in England in 1893 and in 1894, 80 clubs as well. And how many of those still exist? You know, is that a- well? Um, in in entirety of the 
1,300 clubs formed prior to the First World War. 750 of them still exist today. Well, that's pretty good, that's isn't good, it? Yeah. Well, that's nearly half yeah. of all the clubs that exist in Considered England today. Not, like you said, yes. they were just experimenting, really. Yes. So the, they've been remarkably resilient, the clubs mm. pre First World War. If you look at any other industry, you don't see a structure like that at all. No. no. You know, any industry has tends to have a lot of new clubs or new businesses starting up, but most of them fail very quickly. Golf clubs didn't fail. They persisted. And it was only the two wars and then austerity in the, tw- in the 20s and 30s and the 50s that really resulted in a number, uh, a, the loss of many of the clubs that yeah. That, that, that were formed that period but still it's still quite remarkable Set over 750 of these clubs exist today and they count for nearly half of all the clubs in England really? mm. so oh, there's still such amazing. a major feature yeah I think so and you've you know, not wanting to uh, there's, there's loads of things that I want to I touch on here Michael but with writing your book we talked about this just before we, we started recording the podcast. You've, you've got another route of self-publication with this. Um, how is that as a, as, a, as a stressful endeavor, having to, to, to publish it yourself? Was that quite a stressful thing, or did you find it quite straightforward? Well, <coughs> self-publishing is a lot easier now than perhaps it used to be in the past. So the process is quite straightforward. So when I, I start writing, I just creating a Word document and compiling images and charts and graphs that I might feed into that. In the end, over the period of writing it, which in this case was nearly four years, I ended up with a a Word document and a set of images that I wanted to incorporate into the the book. And then I have, fortunately, I've used the same um, firm of... um, Publish, um, publishing in um, services, as a published servicing company. Yeah. So they provide the services of um, editing, uh, layout, design, proofreading, all these things that take you from a Word document yeah. eventually to a PDF. Yeah. And then the PDF then gets sent to a printer. And one month later, you have... You've got your book. Books arrive. Four years is a long time, Michael. Was there ever, ever a point where you thought, yeah, I'm a bit done now. I could stop. <laughs> there were times when oh, I was asking the question, why am I doing this? Yeah. <laughs> it's, this is nuts. It's a big undertaking <laughs> covering such a huge period, I guess. Yeah. So the data you've had to collect. Well, you? the data collection was the hard part because, yeah. <clears throat> and, 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 and I went right back to source. So I'm not sure you know, but in the late 19th century, there was a genre of golf books that came out called the golf, golf uh, yearbooks, golf annuals, mm. and each year the, a book, you know, about an, two inches thick would be published, and it'd be uh, it, at the front. It would have the stories of the day: who won the Open, who won the Ladies Amateur, yeah. etc. But at the back was a directory of all the golf clubs that existed okay. yeah, at yeah. that point in time. Right. So what I what I did was then <laughs> oh, no, went through that directory, and for each of the clubs, I put it into a database and each for each club I had information on when it was formed Mm. um, where it was located how many members it had how much it cost to be a member um, what was the nearest railway station um, whether you could play golf there on a Sunday 
and information about the golf course itself, how many holes it had, what sort of type of land it was on. And, and all, all I had to, yeah. all <laughs> I had to do, yeah. all I had to do was do that for each year and make sure all of that was you, consistent. You all you had to do. You, you yeah, I'm being ironic. <laughs> Yeah, so that yeah. index changing, you know, year on because year. Because each year there was new clubs. Just, yeah, you're yeah. looking for the you're looking for you know the few, the new star few more the clubs. Sky, that yeah. added, so each so. year there was new clubs that were added, and right. of course, in a if you take a particular year, 1893, some clubs didn't f file their information to the publication until 1895. Yeah. So you were always trying to track the. I didn't. I wanted to make sure I didn't miss any. Yeah. And I feel fairly confident I've got the lot. Yeah, you but don't it want took, someone calling you up and saying. You've missed us, are we? <laughs> I, I'm sure there are errors in there, but I've done as much as I think is mm. humanely possible to yeah, put together a database. Yourself, and, sure. uh, and some clubs changed their name, they changed their location, some merged, some split apart, yeah. and you had to capture all of that yeah. detail to ensure that you're telling the story correctly. And a lot of the there was a lot of um, a lot of magazines that offer up a lot of information about golf when they? they would write about the golf results and things like that, that yes they're they're helpful the, the the two that i used which were related one was co it started in 1890 called golf and that became golf illustrated mm. in 1899 and it was a weekly golf you forget how old that is don't you? Yeah, <laughs> golf, know. Illustrated. golf illustrated 1899 the pre-runner to that was golf because it didn't have many illustrations yeah. in it <laughs> that's the only difference so and they, they, these are wonderful uh, publications and uh so they would have the stories of the day, you know, what's happening and also which, which clubs have just been formed. It'd have the results yeah. of golf. And this is where you could see that they were clearly all beginners because the scores were always in the hundreds. Yeah. Mm. Um, and also, it had. <laughs> That's like my golf. Actually. <laughs> I'm not big in a They were using hickories, though, Mills. So come on. Yeah. <laughs> Don't flatter yourself too much. <laughs> well, they also had, you know, stories about the great champions. They also had jokes. Oh, did so, they? So that the, in, there's a joke on the very first. Can I. Um, yeah, certainly, yeah. Read it out. You'll love this. This is in the very first page of the first chapter. This appeared in golf in, on the 10th of July, 1891. An English young lady lately returned from a visit to Scotland. She was remarking to her friends at home on the wonderful extension of the game of golf. It is played everywhere now, she said. It has even spread to Scotland. <laughs> <laughs> so you got jokes like that that were published each week. Oh, but wow. also some serious debates, debates about the rules of golf yeah. took place in the letters pages, correspondence between different golfers on you know what how how things should be dealt with the age-old distance debate which the we distance, like to think is, the, a, is a recent phenomenon not actually, at all it's been, the yeah. the, in, the invention of the haskell the golf haskell, ball in yeah. the late 1890s and first introduced here in 1902 that was a maybe even a bigger debate then than the debate we've been going through in yeah, recent well, Varden, times Varden really fought off playing the Haskell, didn't he? Was he had the the, the, the Varden flyer for ages. Obviously just put <coughs> that out just before the, the Haskell came out. Well the the three the three great the three great professionals there Braid, Varden and Taylor, they all had advertising yeah. contracts to sell gutta percha yeah. golf balls. Which sold for about a shilling a ball. Yeah. But these balls the new balls that came in, they went much further. Yeah. A bit more difficult to control. Mm. But the the top golfers of course got to the top because they were very good at playing with the gutter yeah. Persia ball. So that, to some extent, they were a bit threatened by this yeah. mm. new ball coming in. 
Anyway, they continued to play with it until Alex Heard, Sandy Heard, yeah. uh, borrowed a ball from John Ball Jr. in 1902, one ball, and he managed to play four rounds of the Open with it and won the Open yeah. by a shot in 1902. And that was the beginning of the end. Varden played with it the next year and beat Taylor by 16 shots, who was still, <laughs> still, still, he was still using the old ball. That's so so that, that couldn't relinquish his loyalty they, to his. You know, these were the top golfers of the day, yeah. and uh, that was that was the passing of the of the gutty. And even though the Haskell ball was two shillings and sixpence, it was more expensive. It did seem to be more reliable and yeah. uh, more resilient than mm. even the the gutter ball and so that was the end of that so but you are on your your I we, we have taken up a lot of your time just before your book signing so we're, we're really lucky that we've been able to squeeze in a little bit of time to talk to you about it how can one get their hands on this wonderful book well as a self-publishing author author you have to contact me okay straight to, to have you got a website so, or? Uh, no i just have an email address oh, perfect which is so my email address is mike.morrison57 at outlook.com the book um, uh, has is in hardback and color. It's 320 pages with over 200 illustrations, and it's priced at 25 pounds plus postage and packing. Or, or you could, or you could get to the golf museum and see you sign a few. Now that would be if you could go back in time because this yeah. won't be released. But <laughs> I, I brought a couple of boxes of books to the museum this morning, so, so. that was all I could carry. No, it's fabulous, <laughs> Michael. Honestly, it's been it's been really lovely to talk to you, and good to finally meet up in person. So, thank you for coming on the podcast and explaining about your lovely. Good book. to meet you yeah. both too. Thanks for coming, Thanks, on. Michael. Cheers. Watch this.